Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. This morning I'll be reading from Ephesians, fourth chapter, the first 16 verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who ascended, or he who descended, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we with, will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When I was a kid, I had my fair share, many would probably say more than my fair share, of toy tractors around the house and another stash at my grandparents' house. And over the years, those toys got their fair share of scratches and scuffs put into them. Uh, But there were other toy tractors in my home as a kid that received no such treatment. If you went out into the garage at my parents' house, even today up on on top of the cabinets above the workbench in the garage, there are a series of toy tractors still in their original boxes. And when I was a kid, those toys were not to come down off that shelf for any reason that you could conceive of. They were to remain there in shrink wrap for all eternity which as a kid just doesn't seem fair. Uh, I get it now, the idea of collectibles, and you want to hold on to things and keep them in good condition, but the idea of delayed gratification doesn't make much sense in the mind of a child. Uh, Toys were meant to be played with. Toys were meant to be taken out of their boxes. They were meant to be shoved around and run into one another and used for whatever imaginative games you can come up with as a kid. That is when a toy is functioning at its best. It's fulfilling its purpose, what it was designed to do when it was to be used, not to be left on a shelf. And anything that was made with a purpose functions best when it is fulfilling that purpose. I mean, a watch functions best when you can look at it and it tells you what time it is and the time is right. 
your car is functioning best when you can get in it and you turn the key and it starts and you can drive from one place to another without any problems. That's what these things were designed to do. That's when they're functioning at their best, when they're fulfilling their purpose. And human beings are not that different. You and I were created with a purpose by God. And we will not find true purpose in life. We will not truly thrive. Into, we will not fully grow into all that God has created us to be until we live within that purpose. And over the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians, Paul has been describing what this life is supposed to look like. God is working through Jesus to make all things new, and all things includes you and me. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, now he reigns in heaven over all things, and God invites us to walk with him, to walk in good works in anticipation of the day when he will return to make his reign complete. And God has done all of this by grace, even though we were running away from him on a path that led towards death. He's raised us to new life. And that means we can be united together as God's people. All barriers can be broken down within God's family. And this is a story, if you've been following along with Paul, it encompasses all of history. It encompasses all of human existence, united together under the rule and reign of our perfect God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. We've been created to live in that love, to walk in good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. That is the life each and every human being has been created for. And because all that is true, Paul makes a shift, beginning with the passage that Lyle has just read for us and that will take us through most of the rest of this letter. Because in light of what God has done, we are now called to respond. The life that is available to us has been described, and now Paul begins to describe for us how we can make that life our own. In chapter 3, Paul described his ministry. He prayed that the Ephesians would be given by God an experience of his transforming love, and now he's going to describe how the Ephesians and how all of God's people can step into this life God desires for them. Paul has shown us who we are. He's, he's shown us what God desires to do for us, that we are people who've been redeemed and resurrected by the grace and the love of God, and now he is telling us what to do. And that order is essential. He's not telling us what we have to do so that we can receive the love of God. He's not laying out the conditions that have to be met in order for grace to be received. He, he's showing how we respond to the gift we have been given. We're being told how to live this life we've already been given. He's, God has moved us into a new country. He's moved us from the land of death into the kingdom of God. And now Paul is describing how you live in this new land that you've been moved into. And Paul begins to describe what this all looks like as a walk that is worthy of the calling which we have received. And you, may, you might get tired of hearing me say it, but I think it's important enough that it's worth repeating. Paul does not say walk worthy so that you can prove to God you deserve to receive a calling. He says to walk in light of what you've already been given. You're not being called to walk even though you don't have a map and maybe one day you'll figure it out. He says you've already been told where you're headed, therefore take the next step. This walk after God's calling is a journey that can only be done together. It's not something we're each left to figure out on our own, but we do it alongside our brothers and sisters within the family of God. It's a journey that we make by grace from start 
to finish. We don't get started by grace and then figure the rest of it out on our own. We don't get ourselves most of the way there, so grace can get us across the finish line. The grace of God that called us into life with him is the grace that carries us every step of the way. And as we make this journey, its end goal is one that brings us into all we were created to be in life with our God because of what Jesus has done now and for all eternity. That's the life Paul is inviting us to participate in right here and right now. And we could break this passage down in all sorts of ways, but I've kind of already summarized it for us, but I want to try to distill all of it down into just one sentence and then break that, that sentence down into three parts to help us get our arms around all Paul is saying in these verses. So that summary in one sentence up on the screen is that God's people walk together by grace into fullness in Christ. That's what we're called to do, to walk together by grace into fullness in Christ. It starts in verses 1 by saying we walk together. Paul used the imagery of walking. You might remember back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul begins that passage by saying, you were walking in the way that leads towards death, but now you've been turned around by grace in Jesus, and you walk by grace in the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. But Paul says all of that in that passage without really defining what good works are. He says we're created to walk in good works, and then he moves on. But we begin to get an answer to what this is supposed to look like when we get to this passage and that language of walking comes up again. Walking in good works, walking worthy, it begins with those traits read for us that are listed in verse 2. It comes through being humble and gentle with one another. It comes through patience, through bearing with one another in love. These are necessary for God's people, even when they are not easy. One commentator I was reading this week pointed out that telling people to bear with one another in love kind of assumes that there are going to be things that come up that make it difficult to bear with other people in love. You don't have to tell people to be patient unless there's a chance they're getting impatient. These are traits we might not feel motivated to practice some days because at the end of the day, they benefit those around us more than they benefit us. They would seem a little counterintuitive. Paul is saying that the way to have a full life is to be patient with the failures of others. Common logic might say that the way to have a full life is to acquire things for yourself, to build up your profile, your brand, your status, whatever it is that you want to call it, and through that you will be important, you'll be respected, and your life will flourish. And the message of Jesus says something different. And that was as true in Paul's day as it is in ours. Other writers or philosophers in Paul's day would not have held up humility and patience and bearing with one another in love as virtues to emulate. If they, if they would have said that humility was a good thing at all, they would have said that it's useful to the extent that it reminds people who are lower than you in the social hierarchy that they respect you. And yet the humility Paul talks about here is different. The patience and gentleness of Jesus breaks down our hierarchies. It unites people for the sake of something greater. And that might sound like an odd message to us or to the Ephesians as Paul writes them. To be fair, Paul's kind of an odd messenger. He's a prisoner, arrested as a threat to the status quo of the Roman Empire. And, and in my experience, enemies of the state don't tend to be held up as great moral examples that need to be followed in all realms of life. And yet that's what takes place in these verses. Paul does not see his imprisonment as a means of shame. He doesn't see it as a reason why he should stop proclaiming the message of Jesus. In fact, his chains don't 
bring him shame, they bring him honor. He sees his example not as one to avoid, but as one to imitate. Because just as he is bound in prison as he writes these words, he tells the Ephesians they are bound to one another. As Paul writes this, he's chained to a Roman prisoner. He's unable to do anything, anything at all, without being... Uh, going without going along with the Roman soldier, without the Roman soldier giving him permission to allow him to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And Paul looks at that, he looks at his day-to-day existence, and he says, that's how the church is supposed to live together. We're bound to one another. We're linked together more so than we could ever imagine. These traits of humility, of patience, of gentleness, of looking to the needs of others ahead of our own and treating others better than they deserve, it might not be easy. It might not be celebrated in our world, but it's how we are called to respond to the grace we've been given. We're called to do these things because it's how God has acted towards us in this love that is greater than we could ever imagine. And so we love one another. It's not love that's just some warm feeling that says, you're great, so you can do whatever you want. It's love that is committed because God is committed to us. It's love that is patient and gentle. It is love that looks to the needs of others. It is love that does not remain indifferent to the sin in the life of someone that we care about because that that sin will lead them into death. It is love that wants what is best for them, calling them into a deeper relationship with the God who has called them into life. It is love that does not remain at a distance. It It is not a love that just deals in the realm of the hypothetical. It is real love that encounters real people, imperfect as they are, imperfect as we are, so that we might show one another the love and grace of Christ. And the result is unity and peace, which is from God. If you remember back at the end of chapter 2, Paul said that Jesus is our peace. He is the one calling us and enabling us to be at peace with one another as we walk worthy together. Our world tries to find peace and unity around causes and figures. We just need the right cause everyone can get behind. We just need a charismatic leader that can get everyone on the same page and moving in the right direction. And the only true unity we will ever find is around the person and cause of Jesus. It's not something we pursue with our own efforts. It's not some, it, is, it is something that God empowers us to do because the triune God is perfectly united with himself And he calls us to model that unity with one another. And that is how we find peace and unity, by walking in the way that God has called us to walk, alongside one another, empowered by his grace. And this is not quick and easy. Try to live without conflict with anyone for very long, and you'll probably find it difficult, unless you just avoid them completely. The peace Paul describes here is bigger than just avoiding conflict, and therefore it's more difficult to maintain. It requires more than just getting along. It is a group of people coming together from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences and levels of spiritual maturity, seeking peace and unity together. The message of Jesus doesn't tell us we have to all be on the same page about every little thing and then find unity. It tells us to seek unity as we are, right here and right now, despite our differences. And when we encounter disagreements among God's people, we remind ourselves that before all else, we have in common the love of God, and therefore we can have unity. That is what it means to walk worthy of our calling. It is a life richer and fuller than anything else we will ever find. And it might not always be easy, but it's possible because of our God. 
Paul calls us to unity because the unity we find in God and from God, which he shows us there in verses 4 to 6 by running through these seven things that are one as we are called to be one. He says we've been brought into one body, the body of Christ. We're united together by the one Holy Spirit, God's presence dwelling in all followers of Jesus. We're called to one hope that we have eternal life with our God because Jesus is alive. We have one faith. There might be all sorts of secondary issues of doctrine we might disagree on and debating and discussing those things is good and healthy and necessary, assuming that we are doing it from the place of unity of acknowledging that above all else we are called to one faith in Jesus. We have one baptism. Everyone that passes through those waters to demonstrate their commitment to Jesus have been brought into the same family. We have one God, our Father who reigns over all things. He is good and loving and cares for us as his children. He's promised to be with us and protect us. He's the one we worship and trust. He rules over all things. He's perfect. He's unified in every way, and therefore we can know that he will accomplish what he is calling us to. For all eternity, the triune God, one being and three persons, has existed in perfect unity, and so we are unified. Not because we're nice people, we can all get along, because just being nice will eventually fail us. But if the God of all things who is perfectly united is behind us, then nothing can stop us. This unity that we seek from beginning to end is sustained by God's grace. He's the one that makes this life possible. He's the one inviting us into it purely because he is gracious to us as we are invited to share in the victory of Jesus. And Paul drives that point home by quoting from the Old Testament in verse 8. But you might notice that Paul begins this quotation in a little bit of a strange way, and I mention that just because I think that's a clue to us that this is going to be a strange Old Testament quotation. Because if you have a Bible open in front of you right now, you can see in verse 8 of this passage, somewhere in there, there's probably a footnote that tells you that Paul is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. But if you were to flip in that same Bible back to Psalm 68, 18, you would find that it says something a little different. You would find that it reads, when you ascend on high, speaking to God, you took many captives. You received gifts from people. But Ephesians 4, 8 says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul's switched the language there from receiving gifts to giving gifts, which is a little bit odd. But I don't necessarily think it means that Paul forgot what Psalm 68 said or anything like that, and we don't need to get fully into the, the, the weeds of this, but I mention all of this just to say Paul is slightly altering the words of this one verse in order to capture the thoughts of this psalm as a whole. If you sit down and read all of Psalm 68, you will find that it is a psalm of victory. It is a psalm celebrating God's triumph, his conquering of his enemies, and all of these things. And Paul is tapping into that here in, these, in this verse to make the same point to us. That as God has triumphed and, and he should be celebrated for that because of what he's done in Jesus, it also includes us. He's saying that Jesus is like a conquering king coming home from battle. The Roman Empire would have triumphs for victorious emperors and generals when they returned home, like how cities today have parades for sports teams that have won championships. And there's a longer version of this sermon where I pause here and make lots of jokes about Minnesota sports teams and championships or the lack thereof, but that'll just have to wait for another day. 
But in the Roman Empire, the victor would ride into Rome with their spoils from war on a, on a majestic horse and their, their treasure would be behind them and all the people would celebrate their power and their victory and there would be applause. And Paul says that because of what Jesus has done, because he's resurrected from the dead, he is like that. But as he rides into town, he shares the spoils of his victory with his people. It's like the team is coming through town on parade celebrating their championship and they're passing the trophy through the crowd and everyone gets to touch it. It's like they've got an endless supply of rings that they're handing out to everyone lining the streets so that they can share in the victory as well. That is what Jesus does as our conquering king. We haven't earned any of it, but we get to enjoy the benefits of his victory. And we can see that through the gifts that he gives us. They are unique and diverse, and yet they all work together to bring about the unity we've been called to. And the, the roles Paul lists here don't give us every single way someone can serve in the sampling for us all the ways that we build one another up into all that God desires us to be by his grace. He says that because of his grace, Christ gave his church apostles, messengers to announce the gospel. Because of his grace, Christ gave the church prophets, people to speak truth to God's people, to repent of their sin, and to seek the will of God. Because of his grace, Christ gave the church evangelists, people who announce the message of Jesus to those who have never heard it before. Because of his grace, Christ gave his church pastors and teachers, those who care for God's people and instruct them in what he has said so they might fulfill his calling. All of these have been given by God to his church by grace. And in those ways and so many others, we demonstrate the grace of God to one another. Most of the time when we talk about grace, it is a theological term about how God treats us. And it is that, absolutely. But Paul is saying here that grace is so much more. It is also something we show one another as we use the gifts God has given us to build one another up. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called Life Together while he was running an underground seminary training pastors underneath the reign of Nazi Germany. And in the early pages of that book, he makes this statement that it is by grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Now, if I can be completely honest, I'm currently in the middle of reading through this little book for the, about the fourth time in the last 10 years. And one of these times, it's going to stick. And, and every time, I am struck by that statement. Because if I'm being honest, I don't normally think about living in community with one another as an expression of grace. Maybe it's because I'm an introvert. Maybe it's because I'm not Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't have the life experiences that he has had. But I sometimes struggle with seeing how grace is seen in our life together. It feels like something we get from God, and then what we do with one another is, is something different. And yet I think that quote that we just read is getting at the same thing Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4. We are called to offer one another portraits of the grace of God through how we love one another. We demonstrate the grace of God to one another when we show up to grieve with our friends and family at a funeral. We show the grace of God to one another when we treat people better than they deserve. We show the grace of God to one another when we take communion. We show the grace of God to one another when we greet people like family, even if they're here for the first time. We show the grace of God to one another by welcoming children the way Jesus told us to do. We show the grace of God to one another when two people with nothing in common can be unified together in their love for Christ. We show the grace of God to one another when people that have been in disagreement are reconciled. 
when sin is dealt with and forgiven, I see the grace of God demonstrated through you, through people who serve here each and every week. I see it through people who come to me to tell me about, hey, I saw an issue here somewhere in the building and I just fixed it, just wanted you to know, and I didn't even know that it was an issue. I see the grace of God demonstrated when I hear stories of you all checking on one another when you're sick, bringing meals, visiting, praying, and encouraging one another as you walk together. And that's the sort of life this passage is calling us to. After Paul mentions all these roles in verses 11 and 12, he gives the reason why God has given us these gifts. In our culture that loves celebrities, we might think God gives all these gifts to the church so that the people with the gifts can do things that are really incredible, so that they can uh, make an impact, so they can have a big platform, so people can, can grow their brand. Paul doesn't say that at all. He says these gifts have been given for the sake of building up the church. The focus of these gifts is not on individuals who have gifts. It is on who benefits from those gifts being used as God intended. The focus is not on how the Spirit gifts individuals for ministry. It is on how those individuals help those around them grow into Christ's likeness. That's our goal as we walk together by grace. And as we do it, God grows us into all that he desires for us to be. The portrait Paul paints in these last few verses, verses 14 to 16, is an incredible picture. As all of these gifts that God gives by grace work themselves out in our life together, we grow into the fullness of Christ and all that he desires for us to be. He says in verse 14 that we will no longer be susceptible to being led astray. We won't be gullible like children. We won't be like a ship adrift at sea, carried along by the winds and the waves. We will stand against false teaching and messages that divide God's people because we are walking in the will of God. We live in a world with a lot of teaching that is cunning and crafty and deceitful. And some of it comes from people who think they're right when they're wrong. Some of it comes from people who know they're wrong, they just don't care. But there are false messages nonetheless that the church is not to stand for. A couple years ago, uh, a couple that I'm friends with from when I lived in Colorado, they were traveling together and they were visiting this tea shop and the waitress had brought them some teas to, to try and the husband of that couple, he sipped out of his cup and he said, oh honey, you, you've got to try this tea. It's really interesting. I've never tasted anything like it before. It has this really, uh, really specific kind of taste. Really have to, have to sip it and really really uh, get a feel for how it tastes and he gives it to her and she takes a sip and she looks at it and she says I'm pretty sure that's just hot water (laughs) and sure enough the waitress had come and set their cups full of hot water and the tea next to it and you were supposed to put the tea leaves in the in the cup to then be able to to taste it and I tell you that story because I think a lot of the messages of our world are like that they sound great, they sound appealing, they sound like this really incredible thing no one's ever heard before, and you, not everyone can get it. You just really got to get in there and listen and, and spend some time with it so that you can appreciate it. And really, at the end of the day, it's just empty. And instead of the latest fad that promises to solve our problems and then goes away, Jesus promises us something more. He promises us a firm foundation in a shaky world. He gives us the truth. The truth about who we are, about who God is, about what is going on in our world, and about how he has called us to live. And we need to know that truth deeply for its own sake and for the sake of being able to tell what is false. If you had a, a, 
a dollar bill, a $50 bill, whatever you want to call it, if you had a piece of money with you and you weren't sure if it was authentic or not and you were trying to figure out if it had been counterfeited, you could spend as much time as you wanted standing at, staring at that bill that you weren't sure about, trying to figure out if it was real or fake, or you could go get a bill that you knew was real and compare the two. And comparing the one that was suspect against what is true would reveal whether or not it was authentic. And in a world filled with counterfeit messages, the truth of Jesus steadies us in the storm so that we can grow into Jesus' likeness. And we need to hear that truth from God's word. We need to hear it from one another, and we need to hear it in love. Our English translations say in verse 15 that we are to speak the truth in love. And in the original language, it doesn't make sense in English, but Paul literally says that we are to be truthing in love with one another so that we can grow into the fullness in Jesus. We are called to be people of the truth in love. And Jesus is our example in how to balance the two. Because Jesus was gracious, compassionate with the down and out, but he was also bold with the truth, rebuking those who needed correction. And we can often think of truth and love as two things that are in opposition. You are either someone of the truth and you just tell people how it is and they just need to hear it. And if they don't like it, that's their problem because I'm just giving them the truth. Or you're someone of love and it's okay, I don't want to engage that. I don't want to be difficult. I don't want to make anyone mad. They can just do whatever they want and I'm going to keep a smile on my face. And Jesus is neither of those things and his people are not called to be either of those things either. We are to balance the two. We are to be truthing in love. We measure the degree to which we are succeeding in that by seeing how closely we are aligning ourselves with the behaviors of Jesus. And as we walk in his footsteps, we grow into all that God desires us to be. And he has promised us that he will get us to our destination because he is currently reigning in heaven. And that fact means that he is fully willing and fully capable of giving us everything we need to fulfill the calling he's placed over us. We're called to walk in a, in a worthy manner together by grace as God enables us to walk with him and we're not always good at that you and I are imperfect people and yet God uses us and when we walk as he intends it is an incredible thing last spring towards the end of last school year Whitney and I went to our nephew's band concert at his school and just so you know, we didn't have to like camp out ahead of time to get tickets into the venue. We didn't have to pay admission. It was as in demand as any junior high band concert has ever been. And at one point during the concert, uh, they were going to play a specific piece. I believe it was called Old Time Rock and Roll uh, by a composer named Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. And um, that was a joke. You could laugh at that. And... <laughs> And I found it humorous, I don't know if anyone else did, but I found it humorous because the band director stood up and was, started explaining, you know, what the song sounded like and things to notice and to really listen for as the band was playing. And I was thinking, like, I think everyone over the age of 10 in this room right now knows this song pretty well. I think we can just play it and let it go. And the band starts playing, and I realized that, oh, the band director thought he needed to explain some things because this sounds a little different from every other version of this song I've ever heard before. And I'm not going to stand up here and, you know, bash the musical abilities of a bunch of junior high kids, but, um, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> My family's never going to listen to this, it's fine. Um, 
But there were moments, as you're, as, you're, as you're listening to this and seeing everything that's going on, there are moments, if you really engage, if you really listen, where you can see exactly what's happening, you can tell that exactly what song they're playing, and you can enjoy it and appreciate it. And sure, it's not everything it was supposed to be, but it, there are glimpses of it in there, and those glimpses are a beautiful thing. And I think right there is a portrait of the church. Yes, we are not perfect. Yes, we get it wrong every now and then. We can be impatient. We can be egotistical at times. We can be sinful. We can fight for our own way instead of the good of those around us. If we're being honest, we're probably much closer to a junior high band than we are to a professional orchestra. And yet, when we play our notes right, when we get glimpses of it, when we step into the fullness of Christ by his grace as God is calling us to do, it is a beautiful thing. There will come a day when Christ will return and make us new and transform us into that professional orchestra that he has always desired for us to be. And until then, we pursue glimpses of that by showing one another the grace of God that he has given us in our life together. And each and every one of us are invited to be a part of that vision. No matter how deeply you are invested in life with God or life with God's people, God is inviting you closer by his grace to walk alongside those around you into all his fullness. So take the next step. Maybe you need to dig more deeply into the relationships you have with other followers of Jesus because we're called to life together. Maybe you need to rely more deeply on the grace God has given you and sustains you with every day instead of trusting in your own strength and abilities. Maybe you need to repent of sin or commit to following Jesus for the first time and experience this faith, this hope, this baptism so that you can be formed more fully into the fullness of Christ. I don't really know what life like this passage describes looks like fully for myself, for you, for, for us as a church. I think Paul's intentionally vague with the vision he casts in these verses because what he's describing looks a little different for each of us as we contribute to the body of Christ by grace. I don't fully know what this looks like, but I can tell you I want to experience it. I want to experience it more deeply and I want to experience it alongside each of you. None of us can do it on our own. We need one another in life together seeking God's presence by grace as we grow into the fullness of what he desires for us. I hope you will join me. I hope you will join us as we seek this life together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, that you've made us your children, and you brought us into your family. And I thank you for this church, for the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, we confess our own frailties, our own imperfections before you now, the ways we have sinned against you and sinned against one another. We ask for your grace to cover up those wounds and to heal us. We ask for your grace to bind us together so that we might walk worthy of the calling you've given us as one people, pursuing all you desire for us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.